When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Slate's Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by PBS, presenting Wolf Hall, the new adaptation of the best-selling book series by Hilary Mantel. Catch this historical drama for a modern audience with Thomas Cromwell at the center of political intrigue in the Tudor court. Wolf Hall airs on Masterpiece on PBS, Sunday, April 5th at 10, 9 central. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Fluffy Karaoke Chicken Bites Dog Edition. It's Wednesday, April 1st, 2015. On today's show, the Hungarian film White God is a girl and her dog story, but it's also a searing parable about childhood and cruelty. And then Slate's own Simon Dunan joins us to discuss the sorry state of charm. And finally, we here at the Gap Fest divest ourselves of our last shred of dignity and go and do karaoke. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. That was your last shred, Steve? <laughs> it's, all go- it's all gone now. <laughs> all right. And uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right, Julia. Before we go any further, though, we have some business to take care of. What's, uh, what's on the docket? Well, first, I want to let our listeners know about our Slate Plus segment today. As an extension of our conversation with Simon Doonan about charm, we are each going to divulge tales of our charm mentors. So we will talk about charming people upon whom we modeled our comportment. And then I also want to let listeners know about a really fun event we're doing in Brooklyn this weekend. So Sunday night, it is the first night of the second half of the final and seventh season of Mad Men. And so we're going to be watching it at the Bell House. We're doing a totally free night. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can come at 8 p.m. and hang out with me and John Swansburg and the Mad Men TV Club as we kibitz about the show and drink very strong cocktails. And then we'll do a little session kind of discussing what the show has meant, what we're expecting and hoping for in the final season. We'll watch the premiere of the finale, if that makes sense. And then do a little bit of kibitzing afterwards, and then I'll go home. So anyway, doors are at 8 for Slate Plus members, at 9 for the rest of you lummoxes. And uh, (laughs) just lay it right out there. My question is, what era are you going to dress vintage in? I haven't even concocted an outfit yet. We shall see. I probably should be uh, extravagantly shopping vintage at the moment for this. But um you know, a little, a little, a little seventies Peggy, maybe, or maybe sixties Megan. I don't know. I can't pull off a Betty. I'm not. I, I don't have the Betty in me. Anyway, the event is free, but you do have to RSVP to ensure a slot. They are going fast, so it is slate.com/madmen. There's also another event that I want to let our listeners know about. Next week, Phil Plate, the bad astronomer himself, is coming from Colorado to Washington, D.C. He's going to run a terrific panel for Future Tense, our partnership with Arizona State University and the New America Foundation, about Mars, travel to Mars, the last logistical hurdles standing in the way of our first mission to Mars. The event is free, but you do have to RSVP. We'll have all the details for that on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. Again, that's next Thursday, April 9th, a free daytime event between noon and 2 p.m. Come on out and meet Phil Plate. All right, Steve, let's commence. All right, well, digging in, White God is a 2014 Hungarian film directed by Cornel Mondruso. It tells the story of a 13-year-old Lily who goes to live with her quite unbeloved father while her mother is away for three months. He becomes enraged because she's brought her beloved dog Hagen with her, and after much conflict, the two, the girl and the dog, that is, get separated. What follows is a highly loaded parable about childhood cruelty, animal cruelty, 
puberty and adulthood. We won't feature a clip because it would just feature a lot of Hungarian. And, and, and barking and growling, extensive yeah. barking. <laughs> yeah, this mo- I have to say, Dana, this movie was so perturbing, I finally had to watch it with my Labradoodle. I had to cuddle up with my dog. It's, uh, it's quite... Did your dog get alarmed at the amount of snarling and scary dog language there is in it? <laughs> I was actually wearing a pair of earbuds, but uh, uh, so no. But, oh, very uh, sweet me... of you to protect Felix from the uh, the trauma. I know. Anyway, Danny, tell me what you thought of this movie. I really liked this movie. I'm pretty excited about it. Like, I have a feeling that this may end up on one of my best of the year lists, actually. Although, granted, I've only seen about three movies so far this year. But this is such a difficult thing to do, right? The thing that Mundruso is setting out to do is to use practical effects to make a dog invasion, an animal invasion movie. So unlike Dawn of the Planet of the Apes or, um, you know, any number of, of animal invasion movies in the post-digital age, this is all made with real dogs. There are a few digital tricks, apparently, like at the very end when you see, a, a, a this is not spoiling anything, but when you sort of see a huge field a, array of dogs, I think a few of them were digitally reproduced from the 50 or so dogs that were actually there. But it's little stuff like that. There's not there's no sort of changing of the animals expressions or making them do things that a dog couldn't actually do. So just logistically watching this is kind of incredible to me. I I had another tape running the whole time I was watching it in my brain thinking, how did they do this? How did they pull it off? And I would love to see a making of featurette about it. So but okay, so the question of just the uh, amazing stunts that are pulled off with with practical dog effects aside, I just I think this is a great little parable. And it's very ambitious the way that it essentially cuts between the girl story and the dog story after they get separated and evokes both of their points of view pretty effectively without ever anthropomorphizing the dog. It's kind of a work of magic. I think it may be a little bit too long. I don't think those two stories are perfectly integrated, but it's kind of dazzling, I thought. Mm. Julia, dazzling? What did you think? I found it incredibly powerful, impressive, and wrenching to watch. I mean, there's a lot of dog agony, dog loneliness, dog violence, to the degree that it's a doggy revenge narrative, the revenge is is warranted at the end. I also was watching with headphones while my husband watched a different movie with headphones on the opposite couch in a picture of domestic charm. <laughs> and and I kept like stopping in the middle and being like, oh no, oh no, oh God, you know, which I think is a testament to the storytelling power here. But I also think that the storytelling power and the kind of technical wizardry of the film are bent to the service of a very powerful and strange and interesting story about growing up, basically. And I'm not sure exactly what the metaphor is. It's a little bit complicated, right? But, you know, in a, in a way, growing up is is like the process of getting released into the wild, kind of, and not not having either the good or the bad things that come with having a a master at home who uh, who's looking out for you or not looking out for you or is generally has dominion over you in the way the parents have dominion over a child and, and pet owners have dominion over their pets and, um, and that that's scary and freeing. And I think this story could have been much simpler and much dumber and still been a really fun movie. And instead it was kind of haunting and unusual and just great. And a little bit magical, right? I mean, without giving anything away, there are a few things that happen toward the end that suggest some sort of mystical power underneath everything that's happening. Something that's either bringing the girl and her dog back together or making the dogs band together. Because unlike, for example, in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, where you see what makes Caesar the leader of the apes, you see what makes Andy Serkis's ape, you know, the, the, the genetically superior ape, the one who bands them all together, you never quite learn why it is that Hagen, who serves a similar role in this movie, is the dog that unites all these dogs into this uprising against humans. And that's something that you just sort of have to assume. So there's a certain amount of, um, of, of magic that you have to kind of buy to really get into the story. Of this movie. Yeah. I, something about this movie didn't land with me, and I'm trying to figure out why, because I'm sure it has to do with me and not the film. I th- Part of it is because I feel like we live in a country where we're relatively decent to animals, especially dogs, and relatively indecent to human beings, and we're enormously stupid and sentimental about kids. And so the direction of the parable didn't jibe with my own sense of my own culture's fallenness and it seems to me this is a parable about about fallenness as a kind of learned behavior and that was the second thing that really didn't land with me is I'm very resistant to parables in which the adult world is portrayed as unremittingly from a child's point of view as unremittingly cruel and hypocritical so there's an interesting portion of the movie involves a orchestra conductor she's in a youth orchestra 
and it's reminiscent of um, Whiplash. The conductor is, he's not as grotesquely sadistic as, as uh, the character in Whiplash, but he's is self-centered, hypocritical, authoritarian, who shows no sympathy to Lily as a child and absolutely none towards her, you know, obvious bond with her pet. It doesn't ring true to me. Or when you do it, you have to be very careful to say that this is what to a child the grown-up world is always in danger of appearing to look like. Whereas the movie takes the subsequent step and says, seems to endorse this notion that the adult world really is a network of mutually reinforcing hypocrisies against which a child is utterly hopeless. And animals and children, right, this kind of imputed innocence to animal animals and children is the sentimental basis for the relationship at the heart of the movie between the girl and the dog, which I found enormously moving. But somehow the deck was stacked in a direction I, I didn't sympathize with completely. Does this ring any bells at all with either of you? Because I'm sure it's more me than the movie, but I'm interested to hear what you think. I don't know. You're setting yourself up for a Labrador at the throat, Steve, with these <laughs> these these anti-white God comments. I mean... Or, or my 13-year-old daughter. I mean, she's as likely to take my trachea out when I'm not looking as my uh, as my Labradoodle. Yeah, I don't think innocence is particularly imputed to dogs in this movie. In fact, there's there's several scenes in which you think that the, the lovely Hagen, this dog who we saw at the beginning as this loving pet, really has definitively turned and that there's no one that he wouldn't tear limb from limb. Because human beings have ruined him, though. I guess I didn't find the movie quite so literal. There are definitely some bad guys with a capital B-A-D in the movie that are perhaps a little heavy and the, all the lilting Hungarian and scenic shots of uh, the Danube, like, maybe distract you from the... the there There can be, like, a foreign film great inflation. and Right. Some of the villains are a little super villainous. I, I see your point. But I think that the relationship between Lily and her dad and the way that her dad has actually absorbed the dissolution of his marriage to Lily's mother grows more complicated and their relationship grows more complicated as the film evolves. And to me, that salvaged the film from being too simplistic. I totally agree. And it cuts against the parable and complicates it in exactly the way one wants. I, t- I completely agree. That is true. That is an extraordinary moment in the movie. Yeah, Stephen, I was going to say that one exception to this vision that the movie has, which arguably I think you may be right, of, of adults as all being sadistic hypocrites is the father who starts off as a pretty terrible parent in many ways and starts in some ways to become less rigid and to accept his daughter and her love for her dog. Mm-hmm. But I also will say that to me, the reason to see the movie isn't any of this. The, there is a sense of a haunting parable. I'm not sure if you really poke at it, it stands up to scrutiny or is as unexpected or complex as it might be or should be. But to me, the power of the movie is like impressionistic, scenic and visual. Like, I just feel like there are several images and sequences from this movie that I will carry in my head. With yeah, me including for a the long ending. Time. The ending is gorgeous. The ending is gorgeous. There are many scenes with the dogs and storytelling with the dogs from the dog's perspective that are very unusual and interesting. And there's a scene of Lily kind of discovering, like Lily going to her first teen party, basically, which is like one of the greatest scenes of how scary that moment is. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe you all weren't such timid children as I was, but that like first time that you're going to go like drink and do adult things is terrifying. And the there's a scene that to me just captures an Eastern European version of what happened to me at summer camp one year, <laughs> you know, yeah. like in just a great, powerful way that I feel like I'll be thinking about for a long time. Uh, maybe this is another reason why it didn't quite land with me is I'm still waiting to go to my first teen party. (laughs) Dana, talk to me a little bit about the kind of crazy mix-up of genre that this movie represents. Yeah, this is what I loved about it. This was the first movie that's come out this year. You know, I'm on leave right now. I'm not writing movie reviews. And this movie I really wanted to review because there's so much to be said about it. And I just feel like it's it's weaving together, not necessarily with conscience references, but because, you know, it's sort of part of the cultural DNA. It's touching on all of these animal films, right? It's sort of a incredible journey, Lassie come home. You know, it's got that element of following an animal on his journey home, which is sentimental, but it's incredibly moving, right? You cannot not cry at the moment that the animal and the owner are reunited. But it also brings in the revenge thriller, right? It's, there's a little bit no, of a Tarantino like, feeling to the last Liam 20 Neeson, minutes. It's like Liam Neeson, you know, revenge hound. Right, like Hagen has skills, special skills. <laughs> then it's got the rebel uprising, right? So it's got a little bit of that side of either Rise of the Planet of the Apes or you know, any movie about a kind of a political rebellion or uprising. It has that political parable side. It has the sort of domestic drama between the girl and her father, which is really quite brave to intercut 
you know, it's sort of this, this sensitive drama of a girl and her father coming closer together. And then suddenly you're cutting to a dog fight, you know, with no dialogue for the next 10 minutes. And so I love the boldness with which it did that genre skipping. And, and also you forgot the the chase sequences because there's a there's a roving band of sadistic dog catchers in Budapest as well. And there's some chase sequences that one critic described as like out of the born identity. And I do. It is it is like Hagen is Matt Damon as well as Liam Neeson. He's like eluding capture. But it's born identity meets Lady and the Tramp. And then there's a scene when he <laughs> meets the meets the double life of Veronique, right? It's like against this backdrop like of Eastern European art house filmmaking. <laughs> I mean, we I think we've given if nothing else we've given our listenership a sense of what a crazy fucking salad this movie is. Okay, I think now the time has come for us to reveal it. It's April 1st and this movie doesn't exist. <laughs> punked. punked. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the movie does exist. It's called White God. It's uh, directed by Cornel Mondruso. It is quite a film. I mean, even though it didn't quote-unquote land with Steve Metcalf, that is absolutely no reason to not go see it. I agree, it's kind of an extraordinary accomplishment. So we'd love to know what you think of it. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Uh, Julia, what do we have? This Light Culture Gabfest is sponsored this week by PBS, which is presenting Wolf Hall this Sunday, April 5th at 10, 9 central on Masterpiece. Wolf Hall is based on the best-selling book series by Hilary Mantel about political intrigue in the Tudor court. The historical drama for a modern audience revolves around Thomas Cromwell, the enigmatic and brilliant power broker that served Henry VIII. This book, which I know you guys have not yet read, is totally fascinating, and I got one great tip of advice from our deputy editor here, John Swansburg. Don't read it in the Kindle version. you got to read the print version because... The entire genealogy of the Tudor family is laid out in several crucial appendices at the back of the books. So that need to be frequently consulted. Yeah, as you got to you like dog ear it and flip back and forth to follow who's married to who and who's related to who and everything else. So, you know, buy yourself the, the paperback somewhere. But I'm very excited that PBS is airing this British production of the book, which stars Mark Rylance as Thomas Cromwell, Damian Lewis of Homeland fame as Henry VIII, and Claire Foy as Anne Boleyn. Again, that's on Masterpiece on PBS this Sunday, April 5th at 10, 9 central. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Simon Doonan is uh, an author, fashion commentator, and he's creative ambassador for Barney's New York. He's also, of course, a contributor for Slate. He's just completed a series for Slate called The Charm Offensive, in which he argued that conversational sartorial, you name it, all manner of charm is in a parlous state. Here was his stab at why he wrote, the digital revolution has sped up, flattened out, and depersonalized communication, stripping away the necessity of charm. When rapid-fire emails have replaced lengthy, imploring epistles, who needs charm? When sex precede conversation, who needs charm? Simon, you remain, for me at least, the jewel on the ring finger of the corpse of charm. Uh, Yours is completely, (laughs) completely undiminished. The fact that the world's charm is decaying only serves to point yours up more and more. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. What put you onto this subject? Did you just begin noticing uh, the data points everywhere you looked? Or was there a thunderclap and you suddenly realized what's missing in the world now is is decent amount of charm? Um, I think it was a gradual realization. And of course, my columns are full of sweeping generalizations. So keep that in mind. But I looked around and I thought... All my old friends who are now, you know, they're baby boomers, they're in their 60s, they're more like fluffy chickens, fluffy prize-winning chickens. And then I look at the young people I work with, and they're divine, but they're more like a poillard. <laughs> so they're more like all the proteins there and everything necessary is there, but the, the fluffy prize-winning. And I realized that my generation, we're the generation that still bought into the idea that you had to win people over. Whereas now, you know, we have a much healthier society now where people are sort of have a, a greater sense of equality as they should. And like my generation, it was more like you had to sort of be engaging and win people over. So I think a lot of that sort of charm, quote unquote, was a function of that. What would you say then in the present day has replaced charm? I mean, obviously, people still need to have some means of, uh, of hierarchizing themselves and getting laid and doing all the different things that charm did. How do people do it now? Oh, I think now there's no shortage of ways to communicate and engage other people. You can send them a picture of your bits. <laughs> 
that's just the opening that. salvo. Yeah, absolutely. There's a million ways to communicate. And, you know, I don't want, don't want to sound like I'm bashing the younger generation because my experience of young people now is that they're really great and they're very sweet and they tend to be very altruistic and very communicative. They're just not necessarily charming in that idiosyncratic way that one was used to. So, so charming, by charming, let's talk a little bit about what we mean by charm here, right? It's sort of graciousness, but it's also like a bit of wit and bedevilment and unnecessary but entertaining intrigue. What's how, how would we define it? I'm sort of throwing terms at the wall. I think it's everything you just said. It's a bit of parry. It's a bit of dazzle. You know, it's... Um, conversational surprise and irreverence, you know, because you're trying to win somebody else over and, and trying to make them like you, you know. So, yeah, whereas young people today are greater information, you know, constantly communicating with each other in a million different ways, a million different codified ways. So it's sort of almost the idea of, as I say, winning someone over is like almost obsolete because you can already send them a million pictures of you on some squalid vacation in Cancun. I'm torn between... Julia. <laughs> <laughs> My vacations in Cancun are <laughs> legendarily squalid. Um, I'm torn between total agreement and submission to your argument and a bit of a bit of parry myself. So first I will agree and then I will return the serve. I think that there is just a hastiness to electronic communication and a directness and almost a mechanistic quality to it, particularly in social media. Like, what's the thing I'm going to say that'll make you click on this or that'll make you write me back, which is in some ways a desire to lure in the reader, right? Or lure in the person you're talking to or get their attention in a time when there's a lot of things clamoring for attention. So in some ways, the desire to lure the attention of the object of your desires is is more necessary than ever. But I think it's caused people to be very, very direct in their communications rather than at all idiosyncratic. And it creates a sad sameness to things that I don't love. I also think part of the explanation may be economic. Like if you look at productivity numbers and people's work schedules and people's life schedules, like there's not as much time to you know, just toss around a few pointless texts for kicks. You know, I don't send pointless texts anymore. It's all very, yes, no, great, okay, do it tomorrow, tell me later. No salutation, Let's goodbye. meet at Wednesday. Oh, yeah, I certainly don't say hello or goodbye in any emails anymore. There's no, it's just like in-stream. We're already in the conversation. There's a to and a from at the top. What else do you need, right? So I totally do that. I, I understand some of the reasons for that. On the other hand, I also think that digital communication allows for its own forms of charm. Like there are really charming and skillful ways to use emoji, as you point out. And then there's also really dudsy literal ways to use emoji. And there are really charming ways to tag someone in an Instagram photo. And there's really obvious, cloddish, dudsy ways to do so. So I think I think that the tender sprouts of charm may still take root and flourish in this barren soil. Yeah, oh, I definitely think so. As I say, I fully admit well, everything I write is full of sweeping generalizations. You know, I think, you know, if you rummage, you can find a young, charming millennial, no problem. But, <laughs> but I think in general, there's an underpinning of truth to it. Because also, don't forget, young people today... How's that for an Altakaka statement? I like it. Young people today are under a tremendous amount of pressure to be vocationally successful that I wasn't. You know, it, when I was young, it was, it was about peace and love and being freaky and having fun. And now they have these massive pressure to be vocationally successful. So I don't think there's... You're not running through a field clutching a daisy anymore. It's about... <laughs> Um, you know, trying to get an internship, trying, you know, and feeling this immense professional pressure way, you know, very early on that never even hit me until I was, you know, careening towards 40. Simon, this raises an interesting part of your argument. Is it purely sort of demographic slash generational? So when you were young, the types of people who now populate Mad Men would have looked on your generation and said, this is ridiculous, running you know, the flower children, the hippies, unwashed, self-righteous, self-centered, utterly charmless, right? So over time, over the decades, it became seasoned, it became mature, it became charming. Isn't it simply a function of young people are never really perceived as charming by their elders, and over time, they become those elders? 
Um, yeah, I think that there's something to that, definitely. It's always the grass is always greener, you know what I mean? But, you know, I do have certain friends and they are so over the top and so hilarious, male and female, who, like, when they enter a room, it's a tornado of charming hilarity and they're all in their 60s. You don't necessarily see that from people in their 20s. There might be. Maybe I just need to get out more. Well, you also described the man who gave you your apprenticeship in Charm, right? The guy, the guy who lived upstairs from you when you were in your 20s and he was in his maybe 60s? Well, I say, I mentioned meeting Diana Vreeland, who was a supremely charming person and made everyone feel like they were gorgeous and hilarious and fabulous. But then I said the most charming person uh, I've ever met was someone you've never heard of, which was this male model who lived upstairs from me in Battersea in the 70s in London. And he was he was very like the distinguished older gentleman that was pouring sherry in a in a print ad, you know. <laughs> and it, he kind of was that person. And he was so deliciously charming and funny and would make like set out the teapot and cups. And it was all done with such incredible charm. Uh, even now I'm smiling and laughing at it because his life was almost a parody of charming, hilarious behavior. So I do think that probably is a generational thing. And and that, as you said, Julia, it's all speeded up now and people are just payards texting each other. <laughs> but maybe it's also that, that younger people need generational charm tutors as you are serving as en masse oh my right God, now. I should have business cards printed. See how out of date I am? I'm thinking, oh, yes, the business cards. That'll be the way to do no, it. No, you should start a Tumblr charmtutor.tumblr.com Yeah, I'm sure I'd make a fortune. (laughs) (laughs) Simon, I also wanted you to talk about homemaking in charm or receiving guests in charm because that was one of my favorite of these these six essays about charm in which you, you write the deathless sentence Home is where we guzzle cooking sherry and where aging brassiers are rinsed and draped over rusty radiators, <laughs> which is just in itself the most charming description of a home. And I personally have a belief that having people into your home when it's a little bit messy and idiosyncratic and looks like you actually live is a nice way to receive guests. But given that you are married to a furniture designer and home designer, Jonathan Adler, who makes beautiful things, and I don't, I can't imagine that you don't live in a beautiful and pristine place. I just wanted to hear about this image of the squalid charm of the rusty radiator with a bra on it. Well, I think that actually is more about the style of my writing. I'm always very committed to the idea of teasing, which I think is an old-fashioned concept, Like, and it's part of charm. Part of charm is, um, you know, me among me and my friends, we often tease each other relentlessly. So, you know, when I write, you know what you're like at home, you know, you've got... <laughs> old crispy brassiers drying on your rusty radiators. I felt like you had nailed me. (laughs) Yeah, that's about teasing people. And I think for younger people, they're very wary of teasing. They translate it as a microaggression. You know, so (laughs) I'm aware of that, acutely aware of that. Like, teasing kind of went out of style. So that doesn't really reflect... I'm sure there are people out there. I actually do know somebody who drives her brassiers on the radiator, and it is rather unsightly. I could name names, um, which would be teasing. But um, that's more about that notion of teasing, which I think is, an, as I say, an intrinsic part of charm. And another reason why it made it might have sort of gone out of common usage, because people are very wary of teasing. Um, Simon, would you say that possibly the demonic opposite of the ensorceling Diana Vreeland would be Warhol, who's all about actually using a withdrawn, cold affect in order to drain the person that he's with with their own sense of personal authority and in order to gain social power. Was Warhol maybe the turning point in the history of charm? Um, Well, I do cite Andy Warhol as being... You know, he was so fascinating, so intriguing, and such an interesting character. But that Warholian blankness, you know, which became synonymous with being cool, you know, is an important thing to mention because cool in that Warholian blank way is the antithesis of charm because you're not, you don't, you're not trying to win other people over. You're actually sort of, is some kind of, withholding control kind of scenario, as you said, where you engage them by not doing any of the Vreeland-esque stuff, the fluffy chicken stuff. 
So cool, yes. Maybe cool was the thing that that sort of helped vanquish charm. One thing that's interesting to think about with that is with the rise of sort of social media and all of these platforms on which you can present a self, right? Used to be you could be charming in person or in direct communication with people, but now you're also cultivating your Instagram persona and your Facebook persona and your Twitter persona and your Tumblr persona and, you know, probably there's some people who care about what they say on LinkedIn and whatever. You know, there's all these different platforms where you're presenting a self and it's much easier to do mass cool, mass cool and hauteur than mass like personal effusion, right? It's harder to do that kind of specific flirt and parry charmingness with a few thousand Twitter followers instead of with just one specific individual person whose elephant shirt you can compliment. Dana, you look divine in your elephant (laughs) shirt. I tried to dress for Simon. I have no Liberty print shirts, but the closest I had was an elephant print. I noticed. (laughs) Dressing for Simon is a a hopeless cause. You'll never, never I keep moving the goalposts. But as for what Julia just said, I think that that a lot of what you seem to get across in this series on charm is that charm is about idiosyncrasy, right? It's about finding quirks in yourself and sharing them with another person in an idiosyncratic way. And you're kind of creating a universe, a little bubble, charmed bubble around those two people. And so by definition, that would be really hard to do when you're blasting it out to 700 people on your social media feed. Yes. And and back in the day, you weren't blasting anything. People didn't go everywhere with a camera and they weren't documenting everything. You know, I ha- I just found a bunch of pictures from the early 80s and it's me and about 30 friends in the Lower East Side and we all decided we were going to go out as Patsy Cline <laughs> and we're all wearing these black Patsy Cline wigs and somebody <laughs> thought we'd better take a camera because we're all dressed as Patsy Cline. It was like a performance art thing, boys, girls, a whole mixture of people. And we all went to the area club en masse as Patsy Cline. So of course, somebody took some pictures. But now everyone's taking pictures. You don't have to go out en masse as Patsy Cline. It's just like, here's me sucking in my cheeks, Mm, you know, doing that. (laughs) It's hilarious now. I think the key is, I have no complaints about the world today, regardless of the charm factor. I think it's more fascinating than ever, especially with these selfie sticks and stuff. It's hilarious. What kind of wrap-up was that? <laughs> peculiar. <laughs> no. It's a very charming one. Charm is in no danger of going extinct, um, so long as you're in the world. Simon Dunan, thank you so much. That was very charming show. of you to say so. Thank <laughs> you. Enchanté. <It> was... <laughs> um, and completely sincere. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And the series, again, is uh, The Charm Offensive, and you can find it at Slate.com. All right, the uh, transition to end all transitions from the charming croon of Simon Dunan to the caterwall of uh, Gabfesters. We went into karaoke. All right, we've been talking about this for a very long time, and uh, we banished the foreboding that attends those discussions, and we actually went and did it. We went to a karaoke bar as a group with uh, Dan Kois as our, our Virgil for the, the karaoke Virgil for the experience. The occasion of it is there's a, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, a legendary kar- karaoke bar. A, in a legendary karaoke shithole, I think. Shithole, it's a total yeah. dive, karaoke dive bar mm. called Winnie's, and it's, it's an institution and it's closing. Yes, closing it as this airs, it has closed last night. Last night was its final night. Okay, well, we caught it just in time, as it were. But before we talk about our experiences doing karaoke, why don't we talk a little bit about what our experiences running up to this one had been in the past. Dan, I have to start. I mean, I'm going to begin and end with you, Dan. You are the karaoke king of Slate.com. Tell me about your your life as a karaokeist. Uh, I I really love singing. I have written about it. I've written feature stories about it. I curated an art exhibit about karaoke, um, and I just really love the experience of public singing. I find it really liberating and a way to shake out of my sort of day to day doldrums. And it taps into a performative instinct that I that I have that I don't often get to use in my everyday life. And I like that it's something that I can not actually be good at, yet still succeed at. I'm not a good singer. I don't have a particularly great voice, but I like to put on a show. And as far as I can tell, that's all it really takes to have a great time at karaoke. 
last sorry to interrupt, but last night you broke it down, right? Someone was who wasn't that familiar with the experience asked outright, "What percentage talent? What percentage passion? What was your answer?" It's one hundred percent passion, zero to possibly negative ten percent talent. That's the <laughs> breakdown, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there are definitely people. We saw people last night who were legitimately wonderful singers singing karaoke, and they just made me mad. <laughs> Well, we we went. To I'm sorry, you're mad at me, Dan. <laughs> we went to two. We after we went to Winnie's, and then we went to a more um, shishi curated hipster karaoke boat. I would mm. say we went to the karaoke shithole and the karaoke boat, Baby Grand on Lafayette, and they were both fun in different ways. But I'm not sure everybody in the karaoke universe agrees with your. Hundred percent. I'm sure they don't. There are definitely people who go to karaoke because they are trained or, or frustrated great singers and they want an experience to have that experience. But I feel like most people I know who get, go to karaoke go in with a democratic spirit, in that they want they are supportive of other singers whether they are good or bad, and they appreciate enthusiasm and passion and emotion on stage much more than they appreciate a perfect melisma. Okay, so it's just like public acknowledgement that all of us have this kind of hidden secret rock star yeah. inside of us. Yeah, I think so. And then it's greeted with warmth and support, um, virtually unconditional warmth and support. Yes, in the best karaoke bars, that is the way it works. Yeah. I don't want to color the conversation too much, but how would you respond to the observation that it's a little bit like masturbating in public? I would say that it is the socially acceptable version of masturbating in public. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Wait, but are we going to go around and talk about our prior karaoke? Yeah, I would like to. So, Julia, I know you but, have a tortured relationship with karaoke. Yes. But, wait, let me just correct you very quickly on one thing. When okay. you masturbate in public, though, I would say it's at least 50 50 talent and power. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair, Fair enough. enough. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Julia. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't really know how to follow <laughs> that point. I was trying to think of various lacerating jokes, and I just was so stunned. I believe the laceration has already occurred. (laughs) It was self-inflicted. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, so I yearn to love karaoke, and I yearn to be great at karaoke, and maybe the being great yearning is the thing that's ruining karaoke for me. But I I can remember, like, every time I've ever attempted to do public karaoke and what song I sang and how it went and how I felt about it, like from the very first time I tentatively tried to do Patsy Cline's Walking After Midnight at a hipster place in Red Hook and just had like a frail, tentative, reedy voice that had no none of the oomph of Patsy Cline or that I imagined myself to have to the time that I sang 9 to 5 Dolly Parton song with Dolly Lithwick's husband actually at Winnie's at a slate retreat of yesteryear. Not a good song to do for karaoke. That patter is very tricky. Not a great song to sing to your bosses, it turns out. Um, <laughs> Look how it turned out for you. Though. Yeah. <laughs> that was the key. Right. That was step one in my Give plan. Give that woman the keys to the car. <laughs> That's all fine. I mean, I have no, I, I really don't have that much problem with like shame or humiliate. Like I'm not generally too shy or prideful, I think. I'm usually willing to be silly or goofy in front of people. So it's not the shame part of it for me. It's that I think I do have a frustrated inner diva. Like I like the idea of being able to do a badass version of a song, not necessarily because my melisma is so on point, but just like, you know, I've seen the the ones where enthusiasm carries the crowd to like this great feeling and it's the perfect song and it's a really funny rendition. And even the things that they get wrong are kind of funny. And I feel like I have a person who could do that in me, but the disjunct between how I sound when I sing, which is like one of the kids in The Sound of Music, like, like I have this like little thin, like I've no, there's no like swagger in my actual singing voice. And so trying to figure out the right song always seems like a big mystery. And I've never, until last night, (laughs) had a satisfying karaoke experience. (laughs) So that's where I come in. Yeah, Julia, I was so surprised at dinner last night, pre-karaoke, when you revealed that you have this karaoke block and that you've not ever been confident or happy about it because you just seem like you're a very confident public speaker. You enjoy silliness. Like you say, <laughs> like you're not incredibly vain about, you know, here in the Gabfest about sort of, you're willing to humiliate yourself. Let's put it that way. I, I display it every week. <laughs> and so it was just, it, it surprised me. And I was really, it was just really fun to see you up there singing. And I hope you were having fun. I did have fun. 
So my history with karaoke is maybe it's not as intense as Dan's, but I think we've probably been doing it about as long. I think I've been singing probably since 2003, 2004. I think I've probably only done karaoke a total of maybe 12 times in my life. You've probably been present for about a half third of, yeah, of the time, yeah. yeah, at least. But I love it, absolutely love it, and surprised myself the first time I went out to sing karaoke by how much I did love it. I think I had only seen it. In, I was associated with Lost in Translation, with the best scene in Lost in Translation where they go to sing karaoke in Tokyo. And so I thought, I was going out, I remember, with my, at the time, new boyfriend, now life partner, and his friends. And I was sort of meeting his friends for the first time. We went to a booth place to do karaoke. And I thought, this is going to be, like, off-puttingly glamorous, and everybody's going to have wigs on, and it'll be like Scarlett Johansson in a high-rise. <laughs> it'll be alienating, and I won't be cool enough, et cetera, et cetera. And by the end of that evening, not even that much later, there are pictures of me from that night just standing on tables, belting. I just love, I feel totally at home doing karaoke and watching people do it. It's not just singing. I would actually be really happy to go up for a night of karaoke and never sign up for a song. But something about that parade of, you know, just like this endless clown car of different strange performances that you can't predict that could be beautiful or funny or embarrassing. I, just something about that performative freedom and there's this play space in which you can do it. Maybe it's like the feeling you would have if you were in an improv group, if you liked doing improv, which I think I would hate, but something about that group creation of like fake, um, <laughs> I don't know what to call it, fake stardoms one after another is, is very moving to me. Yeah, it is moving. It's yeah. a good word. All right, Steve. Well, I mean, I guess the way I look at it is there's just almost no way to fail at karaoke except the way that I do it. <laughs> which is which is to bring all of your vanity out into public light in the form of failure and humiliation and like not be the I mean I just I, what I like about karaoke is that you do find your karaoke self I think we talked about this once before that you you think you're Bono or Springsteen and it turns out you're Mellencamp or, <laughs> or worse and uh, so I thought I pegged it pretty well well anyway we'll get into that but I can't relinquish the you know inner conviction that I am a rock star long enough to do karaoke and pull it off successfully so I managed to fall in the perfect midway point between taking it seriously and trying to sing the song and but you haven't given kitching us the, it up and failing but you haven't completely. given us the backstory of your karaoke yeah, I never do it. I mean, we we bought a little home karaoke set because we have kids who like to, you know, do it. And um, you know, everyone in my household hates Bruce Springsteen except for me and I've managed to kind of convert my really little daughter who doesn't know any better. And so very often driving home from ballet, we would sing Promised Land together at the top <laughs> of our lungs and she's really into it and she'll just break into it spontaneously. And so one night we were doing karaoke in our living room and we live surrounded by a gigantic horse and cow farm. And the farmers think were just the fucking funniest thing since sliced bread, like complete idiots, as as the phrase goes. And uh, one night I was doing karaoke with my daughter, and the sun had gone down, and and you know so the lights are on in our house, and it's quite visible in. But it turns out the sight line is just perfect that you can only see if you're doing it for a seven year old girl who's sitting on a sofa. You can only see the person standing up. So I did this like killer rendition of Hungry Heart, replete with like you know, sleeves rolled up to show off my Springsteen like biceps and, you know, and, and like, or maybe it was dancing in the dark, like kind of reaching out your hand to have Courtney Cox join you on stage. For a little twirl, four foot tall Courtney Cox. Like the whole thing. And I look over to my left to see Farmer Mike and Farmer Mallory sitting in a pickup truck in the little <laughs> barn parking lot across the street looking at me. And I fulfilled their every expectation of what a moron who moves to Columbia <laughs> County from Brooklyn is. So... Anyway. So in, sh in short, you love karaoke, just private karaoke. I think that's about right. I if like... you could do private room karaoke that was, in fact, in a closed box with no one else but yourself. Yes. It's like when a little child begins to masturbate in public, what do you <laughs> say to them? Yeah. So that's really for your, that's totally healthy, but that's for your bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm glad to see we're extending this metaphor. <laughs> Let's just work this. So to speak. As far as we can. All right, so that there are our priors, and last night we went out, right? Children behave. That's what they say when we're together. It was crazy at Winnie's as Winnie's was about to close. It had only a few days left. Uh, it was packed. There was only one karaoke book in the entire place because I think people have just been stealing the other karaoke books and taking them home because they feel so bad about their favorite place closing. And I felt like everyone did really great. I was very proud of everyone. First, it should be noted that we went with um, Slate's own Chris Wade, who is 
who is actually the king of karaoke at Slate. Uh, he is he passionate. He is an amazing karaoke. He's passionate and, and he's intense. an improv guy, too. So he, he is, has yeah. that feeling of like creating drama in the room. I love yes. it. He did a Violent Femme song and an Echo and the Bunnymen song, and he brought it both times with intense desire and fire. Uh, but so I sang uh, a song that I really like, Madonna's Live to Tell. A man can tell a thousand lies. I've learned my lesson well. Hope I live to tell the secret I have learned till now. Um, which is, uh, I, I contend Madonna, Madonna's greatest song ever. Julia. Wrongly. Yes. <laughs> Julia took issue with that, but I think it's a great ballad from uh, the late 80s. It's a beautiful song. It's got a great pickup after a long instrumental break. It contains lots of sort of deep, dark emotion, uh, and it's really fun to sing. And at one moment of great passion, I stopped my foot and skipped the laser disc when he's still uses laser discs. It's so endearing uh, that there's an individual changing individual laser discs giant for laser every discs, song. Yes. Uh, so I skipped the laser disc and broke it. So then I, my song ended slightly early. It was like being gonged off, but by gravity. And after like five minutes, I mean, you got, you got, oh, yeah. you got a good run. No, I had, I got, I got my money's worth, but yeah, so I did that. I had a great time. I felt like I, I really put my all into that song. What did you guys think about your performances and your experiences? Well, so let's do it in order. So, so in order of bravery. So Dan went first, Chris Wade went before him, but then Dana was the first to find a song she felt good doing and, and put her name in. So then Dana was called to the stage for, Oh yeah. My first song was um, Midnight Train to Georgia. Gladys Knight and the Pip song, which is really a great karaoke standby because everybody knows at least enough to be a background pip, right? right. I mean, it, everybody can at least follow along enough to sort of contribute something to the song. And it's just one of the greatest songs ever written. Dana, I thought you did particularly well with a, a very difficult, uh, the last, the very difficult last minute of that song. have to buy in. You probably can actually, the words that are appearing on the screen are basically, they're like doggerel or nonsense. They're a collection of words assembled from the rest of the song and placed seemingly at random. And so your job as a karaoke singer is to just do your best to buy into the spirit of the song and deliver feeling, pure feeling to your audience. And I thought you did a very nice job of that. I was, it was totally that's, enjoyable. That's the fruit of me having belted that song countless times whenever I hear it anywhere. Right. So that's one way of doing karaoke, right, is doing a song that you know like the back of your hand and and you sort of know in your bones and you feel confident you can deliver a confident performance of. And that's a that's a way that a lot of people love to do karaoke and a great way to ensure a great experience for yourself is to just do a song that you feel really confident with. Yeah, no, Dana was good. I then dithered with the book for like a hundred years. Yeah. None of the songs that I wanted were in there. They didn't have this. They didn't have that. They didn't have this. They didn't have that. Maybe I should do No Scrubs by TLC. But then Dan pointed out that it has some very long coda. That it's he... got a two-minute outro where the chorus just repeats over and over again. And it becomes <laughs> deeply uncomfortable in karaoke. I was glad to have be warned off of that. So I was flagged away, flagged away by Coyce with his expertise. <laughs> and then basically out of desperation because the, the room was filling up and people were starting to put their chits in. And I was like, we got to get these songs sung. You know, we're going to be here till two in the morning. I put in Upside Down by Diana Ross. And it's not a song I sing along to. And I do feel like that song that you know cold makes so much more sense. And actually another group did Love Shack, like two songs before mine, and I could sing, like without looking at it, I know every like microsecond of the breakdown of that song and which bang bangs go bang bang and which ones go bang bang. You know, like the, like I, I was like, why the fuck did I just pick Love Shack or like Like a Prayer or, you know, Hit Me Baby One More Time. Like some like pop, absolute down the middle pop confection of my youth that I really, really, really know and know that I can sing. And I, I think I have some like jerk hipster I don't know I want to pick something more interesting or unusual and so that's my takeaway that's dumb never doing that again Upside Down was a great choice but it was a great choice no, I, I don't to, think you so, should deny yourself no, that no, choice no no yeah. no so it was fun I just like can't turn off my editor brain so it was fun I had a great time I had I had fun doing the chorus part but the like I was looking forward to doing the ad, the attitudinal like respectfully, respectfully I say to, I say to, to thee, thee I'm aware that you're cheating 
but no one makes me feel like you do, which has this like kind of high, like respectfully asked me. So I can do it here in the room. But then, and a mic in a crowd room is like, respectfully yeah. asked me. A little too respectfully. Very, very respectfully asked me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, that disjuncture between trying to convey that attitude of the song, which is so sassy and fun and like kind of self knowing, and, you know, but meanwhile, I'm like, you know, Sound of Music Maria is like little, like Alps living school chum being like, I'm trying to do a disco song. Like I did, there's just this disjunction. So anyway, I had a great time. It was fun, but it did not, it did not achieve my, like, I will attitudinally convey the spirit of this song desires. That was my feeling about it. Did it make you want to sing karaoke more or less or equal? More, more. I mean, really what I want to do is go to Steve's living room and sing like all the songs I ever thought of singing until I like have a couple that I love and that I love doing. I guess I just can't let go of the idea of wanting to do it well, which is just so lame. That just makes me hate myself that I even care. Think about oh, dancing as an analogy. Like, I remember the moment in college when a friend, a female friend, finally got me, dragged me out on a dance floor, and I sort of got over, you know, just this this fear of looking cool or, you know, looking sexy or knowing what I was doing and kind of realized, like, wait, I can actually just have fun. That's what everyone here is doing and no one cares. I think you just have to reach that point with karaoke. Yeah, and I definitely, like... The crowd was so supportive. You guys were so supportive. Like, it was fun. Like, I'm not embarrassed. But I, like, have ambitions for what I want my karaoke (laughs) to be. And it didn't meet my highest ambitions. But to me, the only solution to that is to do more. Yes, it's practice. Oh, my God. It's to do more. (laughs) To do it. To sing at home and to sing out with with small groups or big groups and to... And to experiment with different kinds of persona on stage. I feel like one concern you have is that your persona doesn't match what you think a brassy, soulful singer should be. But there are other onstage personas you can adopt, right? There's the there's the sort of closed-down, intense-feeling goth persona that you could do if you want to do right. something like that. There's a sort of more bubbly, poppy persona that you could try and adopt if you wanted to. You don't necessarily have to be fierce Diana Ross. There are other personas you can try on in karaoke. You could be Right. See ya and just like put a cloth over put your a, head. Put a lampshade on my head. Well, right. So then when we went to, Dana warned us before we planned this night that she's been known to follow Kois to a second karaoke location. <laughs> <laughs> and It in, happened. Indeed, it happened because Winnie's was getting too crazy and there weren't enough songs in the book that basically all song editions seemed to cut off around 2002. Laser discs. And yeah, <laughs> the yeah, laser discs laser were discs. slow. It was taking like 15 minutes. So anyway, we went to this karaoke boite, very fancy, where people did care more about the aesthetics and there were a lot of like kind of hipster versions of songs from people who went to college after I did and and like a very casual and skillful Dylan just like a woman that was like way too good but I found in the karaoke book there the song I've been wanting to sing at karaoke my whole life which I'm not sure is my standard forever but it was very satisfying to finally sing it which is the car is just what I needed What you just yell? It's like a, it's like a, a, a patter. So it's like a kind of, it's very attitudinal, and it was so fun to yell. That one was much more fun um, in terms of like how satisfying it was to just deliver the song and not feel like my voice was like warbling out of my own control. I will say, you guys were very supportive and interesting. The rest of the karaoke boat was like whatever. <laughs> it yeah. was not interested at all. But it was, it was that was the karaoke triumph I had been yearning for. I mean, it does speak to how important it is to find your song, right? Like if you're stuck in the wrong song, you're in a version of hell, right? And there's almost no way out. It wasn't in hell. that spirit. Let's talk about your experience, Steve. <laughs> okay, well, to put it in some context, I have like commanding fear of flying, and I recently had to take a very long plane flight for which I prepared by popping two codeines and one melatonin. And going into last night, I would I wanted to double that dosage uh, because the truth is, like, my inner narcissistic con- convictions are impervious to therapy in private or public, and so public is far worse. I, I just, dr- I, I like, so then the question is, okay, what am I going to do to get out of this alive, right? Do I go, like, full kitsch value? Do I go, like, kind of sincere? What the fuck do I do? So I may have sliced the baby at a it kind of in half, but at a wrong angle because I, <laughs> as I, opposed to the the correct, uh, yes, yeah. exactly, member babies, the yeah. meridian, the perfect meridian. But but I went with Melon Camp, okay, which you know is just kind of pretty much in my vocal range, and you can also go kitsch with Melon. Though people don't always read it as kitsch. I was walking home with Julia Turner's husband, and he goes, "So you." 
you've been into Mellencamp for a long time? Is he like, like you really, you like Is he it? your guy? Is he your guy? And I was like, fucking you, jackass. No, I did it because I fucking hate the Cougs. Are you kidding? I mean, he imputed this as a sincere taste to me. So it was, it was really a disaster top to bottom. And on, on top of everything else, I decided to go kitsch Mellencamp and I did Pink Houses, which I thought would kind of bring in the crowd. I go into it, and, uh, you know, the first thing I see is Kois telling me, like, making a mime gesture to be louder. So I went down softer by <laughs> many, by 40 decibels. Uh, and then, you know, I was I think, was it because I was tapping my foot? It couldn't have been, right? No, I think but, it was just a yeah, bad disc. So, so the disc immediately just goes into, it like, skips madly. And I'm like, saved by the bell. I, I drop the mic. I'm <laughs> off that stage in a bolt, only to turn around and see fucking Judas over here say, Metcalf, they have Cherry Bomb. And he gets me back on stage due to Cherry Bomb, at which point the crowd... Not Joan Jett's, we should the crowd do it, but Mellencamp's The crowd goes nuts because they think I'm going to do Joan yep. Jett's Cherry Bomb. Yeah. And in comes Mellencamp's Cherry Bomb, and the crowd goes and cherry pin bombs. drop. <laughs> I lived on the outskirts of town. A, it's the best Mellencamp song. B, it's extremely thematically relevant to what you were doing on that stage right there. And yeah, that, he, yeah, it's a guy lamenting turning 35, which I turned 16 years ago. <laughs> so I was waiting for the crowd to split into peals of laughter. Uh, I, I'm like, I don't think I've ever heard that song ever. And the lyrics are amazing. We were young, but we were improving. Yeah. <laughs> I came away from this night primarily with a newfound love of Mellencamp. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, your actual performance was, you were right that it was a little bit inward. Uh, <laughs> it did, you did not have all the Springsteenian uh, explosiveness that I was hoping for. Yeah. Do you think that if are you were a person who was ever going to do karaoke again, do you think that you could do private room karaoke with like a small selected group of your friends? Would oh, that be good for you? That Oh, oh that would make a huge, di- mm-hmm. a huge difference. All I, the difference in the world. I mean, know. we thought about that but I basically decided that was cheating and then we had to go I think it's good that we, we had to do the, the high degree of difficulty because I that performative aspect is the part that's rare and fun and that's what feels to me like cheating about doing it in a private room I mean not you know it's great fun everyone should have fun however they want to but the thing that seems unusual about karaoke is the fact that it forces you slash allows you to commune with strangers in this way and whether you'd want to deck them because they're being jerks or you kind of love them like these girls who did a very bad but very charming uh, Lion King duet. Yeah, I just can't wait to be king. That was a great choice. They just like, it was terrible. You could barely hear them, but they were having so much fun. It was just sort of, and it was such a funny choice. Like it was charming. That performative thing is the thing that feels rare and feels like a fun opportunity to play with. And that's the part that that always trips me up is that like I, it seems fun to put on a performance. And I had a, I had a great time singing both of those songs, but neither of them was like a smashing performance for, you know, whatever. And that it seems it seems like tempting to play with that aspect of it. And, and that's the part that beguiles me and also seems hard to pull off if you don't ever do it. It is. It's definitely hard to pull off, especially because your immediate group of friends are always going to be supportive and there will usually be a people a set of people ringing the stage who are also supportive, but you are often fighting a big room full of people on dates, talking to their friends, waiting for their song to come up. And so you, I find it is most useful to, I often just end up closing my eyes and putting everything I can into it and not really worrying so much about the audience. Yeah. I mean, in a way you're not, ideally, you know, the entire room would fall hushed, I guess, in some fantasy universe. But in a way, you're not singing for the audience. You sing. I feel like you're almost singing for the song, especially when I sing a song that I do know really well and love in karaoke. I sort of feel like I'm part of the history of this song. You know, I'm one of the people who has gotten to deliver its greatness to the world. And it's almost, you know, it's sort of immaterial whether other people are having that same experience or not. That's right. I love that idea of singing for the song. That's kind of a great way to think about it. Dan, thank you so much for shepherding us through it. It was really a total pleasure. Thank you all for your braveness in the face of almost unthinkable danger. All right. Well, now's the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you got? 
So in honor of White God, which had me randomly scribbling down all the many titles that it made me think of and some of the genres that we talked about in that segment, I'm going to endorse two books about uh, dogs finding their way back home that were written for children, but that are both wonderful books that are really underrated. And everybody only thinks about the pop culture iterations of these two stories and not the original books, which are great. So one... Steve, I know you're going to guess this one because it's by Dodie Smith, the author of your beloved I Capture the Castle. It's The 101 Dalmatians. Have your daughters read the book 101 Dalmatians? They yet? have. They love it. Isn't it such a great book? So it's, it's we've talked about it before. Yeah. I've endorsed the great Martin Jarvis reading of it on, on Audible, I think on one of our Audible ads. But I don't think I've ever flat out endorsed the 1956 novel 101 Dalmatians by Dodie Smith, which, among other things, posits this great dog culture. For example, the twilight bark, which is how the dogs all communicate with each other at night and send the bad news that the puppies have been stolen. It kind of imagines, you know, the the dog culture that underlies the apparent meaninglessness of our of our pets' lives. And then the second book I wanted to recommend is the 1938 novel Lassie Come Home by Eric Knight, which is another really specific book about about a, a place. It's it's almost less about the dog coming home, Lassie Come Home, than it is about England. It's sort of a travelogue of all the different regions of England that the dog goes through on his way home. And there's some little parts where, because it was written in 1938 and it's kind of nationalistic, there's a little bit of jingoism and xenophobia that comes in. I think there are some, like, gypsies that are badly spoken of or something. But if you can overlook those dated elements of uh, slight racism. Lassie Come Home is a really kind of lovely regional story and also just a a wonderful dog meets kid story. Julia, what do you have? I'm tempted to offer a couple beloved animal books from my childhood as endorsements. I remember loving and getting totally absorbed by the weird, weird rabbit bureaucracy of Watership Down and also um, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. There's like so many great animal perspective books for kids, except, except that after rushing to the defense of Eloise last week for our segment, I had failed to do a crucial thing and go back and read Eloise before we did the Eloise segment. And I realized that because I have two boy children, nobody had given me Eloise and nobody had given me Madeline. So I didn't have them lying around the house handy to consult. And I purchased them thinking I must rectify the gender imbalance out with the Richard Scary trucks in with 12 little girls in two straight lines. And (laughs) I didn't like either of them. I didn't like Eloise or Madeline. I reject this dialectic. And I think they're both pretty bad. The Eloise books are super long. I remembered the kind of funny, skewed, puncturing rhythm of them and the kind of askance view on the adult world. But they just go on and on and on and on and on, like they're just way too long. And then Madeline, that book is about a girl getting her appendix out. I had forgotten that. It's a a pretty dudsy storyline. So anyway, I now, I trust none of my childhood recollections. Next thing you know, I'm going to go back and read Need a House Called Ms. Mouse and hate that too. (laughs) No, it can't. It will never happen. That won't happen. Well, Madeline is all about the illustrations, I think. I mean, the text is okay. And my daughter actually loves the appendix out plot line of that book, but... Eh, the the rhymed couplets are kind of weak. It really is just about those beautiful paintings of Paris. They are gorgeous. And I am still fonder of Eloise than you all are. I remember spending hours with it, and I can imagine my kids doing that as they get older. They seem to like it okay. But I'm, you know, my voice is getting hoarse and parched, and I'm only like halfway through some boring story about what's happening in the parchment room of the plaza. There's like 40 pages yawning on before me. So instead of endorsing my memory and relying on something I half remember from the distant past, or just kvetching about things that I spoke positively of on past shows, I will endorse a book I have read and thoroughly enjoyed reading out loud in the last two weeks. And that book is called The Day the Crayons Quit by Drew Daywalt and Oliver Jeffers. It's an epistolary children's book. It's a series of letters written to a kid by each crayon in his box of crayons, describing their complaints about working conditions, general view on life. And it's just really well written. It's really fun to read out loud. Each of the crayons has their own distinctive voice and perspective. So you can kind of, it plays to your theatricality in less embarrassing ways than karaoke. And it just seems like a new classic. And Oliver Jeffers has a bunch of books that he also writes, I think, which are, his illustrations are just gorgeous. I think they're some of the most beautiful children's illustrations going these days, but it's, I don't like the books as much, but this one has, is full of crackling wit and fun voice. So protractedly, I recommend The Day the Crayons Quit. I love that book. All right, well, Dana, if you're allowed to go back to the um, inexhaustible, admittedly inexhaustible well of Dodie Smith, then I'm going to go back to John Searle, who I continue to worship, and the more I read of him, the more I worship him, in fact. But there's a, a wonderful British institution known as the Wreath Lectures. They were named after the first 
director general of the BBC and Eminence is uh, asked to give a series of, I believe, five or six uh, lectures over a series of um, five or six days. No lecture is supposed to be more than 30 minutes. Each is meant to be able to stand alone, but all six are meant, it is six. All, all six are meant to relate to one another on a, on a single uh, broadly construed theme. The first person to give one was in 1948. It was Bertrand Russell. In 1984, Searle gave the wreath lectures, which is a big honor for an American. I don't think they've asked very many of us to do it. And uh, Searle delivered, and he delivered in spades. I mean, he, he basically he delivered what has become a book called Minds, Brains, and Science that was published soon after the lectures were given. And Searle already is a philosopher who believes in never resorting to uh, technical jargon unless utterly necessary or unless imposed upon him by his uh, lockjawed colleagues. He uh, writes for a general audience beautifully. He believes in clarity of expression. He uh, avoids obfuscation like nobody else. But he also, in those lectures, he basically not only summarizes some of the strains of his own scholarly work, but what he really does is he attacks this notion of the mind and the brain and the relationship between those things and language and the social sciences and whether computers are brains or could ever think uh, and whether brains are computers and on and on. These sort of central questions of consciousness and language, which he's devoted an entire career to trying to puzzle out. He states his arguments with such simplicity and elegance and they strike me as totally inexorable. And I had already read a lot of John Searle by the time I picked up this book, and, and it just happened to have it. I, I think I bought it 20 years ago and ignored it completely. And I thought, oh, well, this is just, I'll just kind of read this. It's tiny. It's a slim little book. I thought I'd just read it very quickly, and, and who cares? I mean, maybe he sort of, maybe there's some extra goodies in there. Turns out it's he only gets stronger the more simply he states his argument. He only seems like more of a kind of towering intellectual figure, really, the more he imposes clarity and simplicity on his on his own thinking. Um, and it seems to me these questions that remain vexed and they're battlegrounds. I mean, they really are the point at which some of the more consequential contemporary philosophers are really fighting it out. I mean, there's, there are many, many subtle variations on it, but there are effectively two positions for which I would say Searle is the most convincing on one side of it, and Daniel Dennett's probably at least the most notorious and famous on the other side of it. Um, anyway, for anyone who's interested in those issues, I, I, this book is indispensable. I mean, I just thought it was its just an extraordinary thing to, to read it and be and to feel as though for the first time in your life you've put on eyeglasses, right? And you suddenly realize the world as you looked at it was indistinct in a way that you never would have known if you hadn't put these up to your um, face. So um, highly recommended John Searle, the wreath lectures that he delivered in 1984. It's called Minds, Brains, and Science. Get it on Amazon and um, get your eyeglasses. All right. Well, thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, Steve. I'm. I hope you'll still talk to me now that we've all uh, karaoke together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus God. <laughs> uh, He'll never show his face again. That's for sure. It's Ghent forever from now on. <laughs> yeah. No. No kidding. All we right, just have to well. set up the drop cam to watch his home karaoke stylings. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com/culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Oh, wow.